We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to PerpetualChessPod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined by someone I have long wanted to interview. He is a legend of British chess, three-time British champion, two-time world championship candidate. He's been ranked as high as number four in the world in 1989. He's also as a, a trainer who has worked as a second for some legends. He's an author, a chess-based columnist, and a Twitch streamer. And it is my great honor to welcome to the show Grandmaster Jonathan Spielman. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello, Bennett. It's very nice. I'm going to enjoy this, I think. Yeah, I am super excited. I've been reading. I mean, I read your columns anyway, but I've been digging through them, reviewing right. your biography, which one can still get on Kindle. And I've got a lot of questions uh, related to sort of the highlights of your career. But we're recording this the day after the Speed Chess Championship. So, mm-hmm. and I was pretty impressed with it. They had 150,000 concurrent viewers at different times oh. during the match. 
which I found staggering and it was quite entertaining on, on the heels of the World Cup. Uh, so I was just curious, uh, Jonathan, if you watched it and when you do, if it gives you an opportunity to reflect on how chess has changed over the course of your career. Well, yes, I did watch it. I assumed that they would start after the World Cup had finished. I, I assume they, I don't know if they moved the start time, but certainly that they weren't, they weren't going to be playing chess when there was football on, I don't think. Well, it clearly they weren't going to be. Uh, yeah, I watched the start of it. I was teaching somebody, actually, somebody quite strong, and we watched uh, the first few games. And I thought Magnus, yeah, I thought he tried too hard in the first game he lost in the ending. He was trying too hard to beat Hikaru. And then Hikaru totally dominated him until I left. We went to have, what did we do? Uh, had dinner or something. Then I came back at the end when... Um, Magnus was just starting to fight back in the bullet and he actually equalized and then splattered again. And I thought it was very, I mean, there were some very dirty tricks. I thought Queen to B4 <laughs> takes B2 was very tricky of Hikaru. And obviously, Magnus took ages to get started, didn't he? Yeah. Because he didn't win a game till game, I don't know, 10 or something. Hikaru was just bashing him. So you said that they were interviewed and they were respectful about each other, which is nice. It's always nice when people. So I'm sure they do respect each other, in fact. But but you don't need trash talk or any nonsense when you've got chess. You know, chess is nicest when people are basically rather polite to each other, I think. Yeah, I agree. And again, we're recording this. There's going to be a big announcement from Chess.com and Magnus in a couple of days. But certainly the subtext of uh, I enjoyed both interviews with Hikaru and Magnus. But the subtext to me is that whatever format they're announcing, whatever future events, it seems like it won't be the last time we get to see Magnus and Hikaru tangle. And Magnus seemed um, emboldened by the challenge, even though he lost. You know, no, it's great. I mean, you know, they are about, they're very equally matched, aren't they? I'm slightly yeah. surprised Magnus beat him in the bullet. I mean, I mean, I suppose Ali Reja would beat either of them at bullet, actually. But perhaps he's perhaps the best in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was watching recently, well, on Leeches, actually, but when Ali Reja was playing, who is Penguin GM? Uh, Andrew Tang. Andrew Tang, that's right. And they were playing Hyper Bullet. And I, I was, so they're playing 30 seconds. And the extraordinary thing to me is that for the first 15 to 20 seconds of those games, they look plausibly like games of chess. Because I'm just, I, I don't play Bullet at all because I'm too old and, I mean, I can follow it fine, you know, my brain can follow it but my hands can't move a mouse fast enough. So yeah, I've never really... I mean, I can play bullet on, well, one-minute chess on a chessboard, perfectly okay. But somehow moving a mouse, I'm just not very, very quick, so I don't. And you, you recently know, turned 66, correct, John? I did, sadly, yes. <laughs> yes, I am now formerly a pensioner in England. Yes, I have my freedom pass. Oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> freedom pass, we get... In London, you have something which means you can use all transport free. I mean, all the, the underground and the buses. And now, in England at the moment, you get something so you can use any bus anywhere in England for free, which is actually rather a wonderful thing. And also, I think it's cost-effective, in fact, because by mobilizing these ancient codgers, you actually get them, first, they're healthier, and then they go and spend money doing things so in terms of overall budgeting, it's actually a really good idea. But of course, there are different budgets being used. 
Well, I'm glad that you get a nice perk, and it's nice to I, this will be audio only, but I can see John, and it looks to be in uh, in good health. Um, so, one more on the speed chess championship, Jonathan. Of course, you come from the age of the smoke filled rooms and the uh, you know occasionally have that much smoke filled rooms when I was young. I mean, I mean, there are the stories, aren't there, about Bob Vinick? Uh, to, to, to practicing against somebody blowing smoke into his face. Right. Uh, allegedly, yeah. Uh, supposedly. And, you know, that seems quite plausible. But certainly, it's a very different thing now. I mean, internet chess is different from over-the-board chess, and I prefer over-the-board. I mean, I love playing Blitz over the board. Um, but, I mean, I, actually, I haven't played much internet Blitz at all recently. I just don't do it. I mean, I suppose I could do, and I'm reasonably competent, but I'm a bit slow. I can do three plus two absolutely fine. Right. Three, fine, but any faster than that, I'm just, you know, don't like it. And do you watch a lot of these online events? I watch quite a lot of them, yeah. It just depends what's going on. I certainly do. I thought that they slightly uh, merged into each other, some of the meltwater stuff and things. You know, there were so many tournaments with almost the same people. But then when you watch a match like that, like they just had, it's very interesting seeing them making war. And the way that they both beat up their opponents in the way to the final was very impressive. And the way Magnus beat up MDL was very impressive, I thought. Yeah, Magnus said something in the post-game interview, something like he, th- he thought all along there was about a 5% chance he, he or Hikaru would lose to someone other than each other. Like, really? like he, he didn't it's think it was likely at all. Because they didn't have Ali Reza, I assume, in this. Or... Yeah, yeah, I don't believe they did. I don't, know what he's, I don't know what he's been doing. He just, uh, last I saw, he's not in the World Rapid and Blitz either. No. So so the world, so the, is it the World Rapid or the European Rapid? Is it the World? Well, he's not oh, playing in the World. Yeah. There's just been a European, hasn't there? Yeah. Which was won by some guy. Michael Adams was playing and then lost some guy from trying to win a drawn ending and then came a point off the lead. I saw a few games. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, let's go. Let's get into your career a little more, Jonathan. There's so many questions I'm excited to ask you. Um, I've got to begin with one where you've written and said a few times that Vasily Ivanchuk, Vasily Ivanchuk, is yeah. the most talented player you've ever encountered. And Absolutely. I'd, well, I mean, I'd, it's partly because he totally bashed me in right. a way that, the way that neither of the K's did. I mean. He had about, I had about 50%, I about as many losses as draws. And I had one, one position against him in my life at Linares, and I missed it, and then we drew soon afterwards. And he was extraordinary, and is extraordinary. I mean, the move night D7 he played a few weeks ago. Amazing, yeah. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, I was talking, I was at the, uh, my last tournament was the UK Open Blitz, which was, when it's called Open Blitz, it, it had qualifiers. And this meant that the top guys didn't play because, you know, you had to be in London at the right time or something to get into it. There weren't any designated spots. So there was this open blitz tournament and the qualifier for London was actually about seven minutes walk from me. So obviously I played. It was in a, uh, Adam Rowe is the guy who ran it, a British organiser. And um, so I got to the final and actually I was first equal with a Ukrainian guy living in England and, and won it, but I, but I'm on tiebreak. But I did get absolutely splatted by a 12 year old Scottish boy, <laughs> um, who is very very little. 
he still hasn't had a, had a birth spurt. A guy called Freddie Gordon, uh, he's got a German mother, who is very, very talented. And anyway, so uh, what, what are, where have I got lost? I've got lost as to why I started. Ivanchuk, yeah. Ivanchuk, right. Yeah. And um, he, oh, 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 the reason was that there was a women's tournament next to ours, which was won by the what, Russian, but uh, opposition Russian, who's married to the Ukrainian, who was first equal with me, a woman called Mirzoeva. And um, one of the women stopped me and said, oh, she's a friend of Jordan Van Forest. So I asked, did he fall off his chair? And <laughs> uh, I mean, but I would love to have seen film of his face after that. I'm sure there isn't any. Yeah. So let me just give a little context, Jonathan, for any listeners who did not see, or at least yeah. maybe are not actively recalling. So in the the World Team Championship, and Jonathan wrote about this in his chess base column, um, yeah. and I'm sure there's tons of uh, videos online. Ivanchuk yeah. played this amazing move. It's called, it's commonly referred to as sort of a Novotny theme move, which it's is sort of... It's sort of an Novotny, yeah. Do you know what a Novotny is? Yes. Um, or, yeah. And I like I the little you, definition you shared in your comments. Sorry, go That's ahead. A Novotny is an interference. Sorry, of course you do. Sorry. A Novotny is an interference between two pieces. You put a piece on the square where their lines intersect, a rook and a bishop, say. So the rook's going, sorry, I, it's not going to help because this is video, isn't it? The rook's going, <laughs> the bishop's going across. There's a square in the middle. You put a piece in between on the intersection, and whichever piece takes it maintains its function. It's important. It doesn't lose its function but it interferes with the function of the other piece. It's basically an active, they're called, there's another study theme, which is, what the hell is it called? Um, a, do you know? Um, and the, no, the, I'm, the, drawing, I'm drawing the, a blank. The, there's a problem theme, a Grimshaw, a Grimshaw. A Grimshaw is the same thing, but where you don't put a piece in the interfering square, but they have to interfere each other for some reason. So the um, if your if your readers can visualize this, the archetypical uh, Novotny, white has pawns on e7 and a7, so they're both trying to queen. Uh, black has a bishop in h1 and a rook in e1. So one of the pieces stops each of those past pawns. The rook in e1 stops the e pawn on the e file. The bishop in h1 stops the pawn on a7. And you put a piece in e4, archetypically a bishop. If rook takes yeah. bishop, a8 equals queen. And if bishop takes bishop, e8 equals queen. Yeah, so that'd be black putting a bishop on e4. But, uh, what, white, oh, white, sorry, white, sorry. Yeah, because yeah, they're white pawns in the seventh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that is uh, called a um, Novotny after Anthony Novotny, who uh, you, you, you can Google him. I mean, obviously, this is online. If you Google Nov uh, Novotny, and specify it as being chess rather than a Czech politician, then you will find a rather good Wikipedia article about this. Um, yeah, and you should definitely check out the game from Ivanchuk and Van Forest. Van Forest is fantastic, yeah. Yeah. So I just think he's a genius. And people used to say, Michael Adams or Nigel Short used to say, he was the only player they ever played who they had no idea what his next move was going to be. Right. So everybody else, you know, you sort of knew what was going to happen. Sometimes they were going to punch you in the face, and it was tough. If it, if Kasparov punched you in the face, he did so, and there was nothing you could do about it. But you you knew what sort of moves were going to hit you, 
whereas with Ivanchuk, you just didn't. And is your opinion of him as the most impressive player you've seen, is it informed by post-mortem analysis as well, or mainly just your games uh, against him and his moves? He's just, his, his whole view of chess, he sees the chessboard in a way which is extraterrestrial and uh, um, powerfully extraterrestrial. You know, it isn't, it's just wonderful. So, yeah. so yeah, I think he's a genius, you know. I mean, I think Kasparov and Karpov obviously are in their own ways as well. I mean, Kasparov is one of the best, you know, two or three attacking players of all time, together with Tal and Alakine. And Karpov is perhaps the best player. I don't know, maybe Magnus is as good at this now. One of the best middle game players ever, just at putting his pieces in good squares. Karpov just could play moves very quickly, very easily. Good moves, often the best move. I mean, Karpov's great game, and there are a couple of them. One of them is his game with Spassky uh, from a candidate's final, or was it maybe even a semi-final, where he played a lot of tiny moves, including knight c3 to b1. Uh, Spassky played his cave in England and got a position that looked perfectly playable. And there was a series of maybe a dozen moves where it looked as though Spassky wasn't playing moves at all, but Karpov was. And all of Karpov's pieces ended up in the best squares. Spassky ended up all over the board, sort of falling back all over the board, and then Karpov killed him. Absolutely fantastic game. Do you need a reference? Or I can get you a reference. Uh, that's okay. Go on. and Yeah, I mean, I can find it, but I'll have to go and look in a chess space. Oh, that's okay. We'll, we'll get that later. <laughs> uh, later, and I will link to any games referenced in, in yeah. uh, the show description. Any other yeah, favorite that's... Karpov games? Well, there's Karpov Kochnoi, uh, the famous uh, dragon. The dragon, yeah. Yeah, th that's rather wonderful. Um. I think it's those two are the really good ones. I've got a database of Karpov. Oh, Karpov Unziker, of course. Do I mean Unziker Allman? Yeah. I mean, the, the, there's one with Bishbay 7 uh, in the Royal Lopez where he doubles and plays Bishbay 7 on the A file. That I think is Unziker. Yeah, it is. Ullman yeah, classic. In, there's Ullman in an ex, uh, Tarash French with a Bishbay B5 where he just completely squashes him as well. You just felt that this was a very, very dangerous player. And, you know, generally he crushed me. I mean, I did get him once, but <laughs> in all the hours, but yeah. How many times maybe, do you recall playing him in classical? Maybe 10 or something. I think I probably lost 5, 1, 1, and drew 4, something like that. I don't know. I mean, I could look it up. Again, right. I can tell you in a few seconds because I can look at my own database of my games will be fairly accurate and i'm sure when you do when you look at your games like that does like a flood of stories come to mind as you look at each game and sort of zero in um some of them some of them not i mean my memory's not that good actually i mean quite often i can't remember if i played people if the games weren't very memorable but that's I mean, good to hear because some of these some of the people i interview <laughs> their level of recall is quite disturbing for an average person such as well, myself well, well i don't have a particularly i mean uh, I mean, I, well, it's interesting because I'm not very good at names, but I quite often see a person know which games of chess I've played with them, probably know which relationships they've had, know <laughs> right. where they live, but, but can't remember their bloody name. That happens quite often, actually.
and and it always has. It's not just uh, the um, no, 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 it's not because I'm getting old and, and codgery. No, it just <laughs> I, I'm just um, quite often lose names. But I mean, you know, then I, I mean, I get them back eventually, or of course I can just look up a game and find them that way right. if I'm in a chess space. So you know, That's if funny. they're chess players, yeah, yeah. And let me ask you, John, so you've had the chance, obviously, you just mentioned uh, Kasparov and Karpov. You, yeah. You've also worked briefly, famously, on uh, Korchnoi's team in Montpellier. Um, uh, 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 oh, that, yeah, he sacked me very quickly. That wasn't... Yeah, so I, why I did he sack you? <laughs> oh, I think he just didn't think I was doing very good work. He wasn't an easy man to be a second for, I don't think. He was quite... A, I liked him, but I, I thought, you know, you're a grumpy old whatever, but you've lived through the siege, the siege of Leningrad. So right. what do you expect of somebody who's lived through that? They're not going to be easy, are they? I mean, you know, I, if you've lived through something as terrible as that, then you're bound to be a bit difficult, uh, you know. Uh, but I've also been, of course, Anand second and Nigel Short second. Right. So let's yeah. hear about those. Well, I mean, it was a lot easier than being Victor Lvovich's <laughs> second, I think. And the Nigel match was didn't go very well. I mean, I, I'd already agreed to do television work, so I was doing a television show as well as that, which was nice because I, I'm not very good at sitting on my hands at home when they're playing. I, I mean, I can work very intensively, but not for very long periods, maybe. And um, basically, the first half, I was working uh, with Robert Hubner, so I was energy and he was mass. And the idea was that we looked at the, the Nidorf and I tried to blow it to pieces. It was just before computers. Lines of the Nidorf were Nigel was playing Bishop C4. So I would try to rip Robert's head off and he would defend himself. And I would be astounded and confounded because he would defend himself quite mm. often and just keep his extra piece and win and didn't seem to be perturbed by the energy being beamed at his position. So that was that one. Uh, that was in London. The second half of the match, Kasparov was being divorced, which didn't help him at all. I think his wife told him he was going to, she was going to divorce him round about game 10 of 20 or something. And Nigel did quite well in the second half. He won one game, I think. And Kasparov basically just canted to, to victory, but without um, being that impressive. The other match was in New York at the top, of course, the Twin Towers, which aren't there anymore. That was Anand and Kasparov. We did quite a lot of intensive work somewhere. Uh, where the hell was it? Was it in France? Um, trying to think. Uh, where did where did she have his his place? Um, anyway, we oh, did. Well, he had a place in Spain, right? In Spain, sorry, it was in Spain, wasn't it? Yeah. That's right, yes. And we, we went there and did quite a lot of work. There was Patrick Wolf, there was myself, and there was Arthur Yusupov. And then we were there uh, for the six weeks of the match. Because, of course, these matches went on much, much longer than they do now. It was 24 games, wasn't it? And that was a real education in match play. I've always understood matches much better after that. I don't know if you know... What do you, the outline of the match. Well, I'll tell you, readers, anyway. So it started off, um, Anand was probing against the Skaveningen, basically, the Sicilian Skaveningen, playing different systems, trying to get an advantage. Kasparov 
because it was tw 20 games, started, I think, with one knight f3 or one d4, and then moved around trying to find a weakness. So eventually, maybe his third white, he tried one e4, and he found out that Vichy was playing the open defense to the Lopez, which, of course, is both a wonderful opening and a gaping wound because it's on prees to enormous numbers of different forced variations. And that game was drawn. Then Kasparov took a timeout and tried to scotch. I can't remember which order he tried the scotch and the, the open Spanish. I mean, you, people can find out. I've got it. And then eventually, um, round about game, I can't remember even who was, who was white in the first game, Vichy won a game against the Skaveningen. And at that moment, it was imperative to move out of the way. We didn't realize this. We'd analyzed the open Lopez in huge detail, but we analyzed half a move too late. We missed something. And we got hit with an enormous punch in game about 10 of the match. And um, Kasparov knocked him over, basically. Now, Vichy had got a second defense at least, which was the center counter. And he should have moved the, the, after hitting Kasparov when the guy was enraged and hence very dangerous. He should have moved to the center counter. Uh, because at that point, Kasparov would have been hopping mad not to have played his novelty. Mm. And also slightly on tilt, I think. He was so, so ferociously determined to win. And that would probably have made to a, led to a completely different match. What actually happened was Kasparov won with his huge theoretical punch. And then he switched to the dragon, which we, he'd never played before. And we didn't even know there was a book on the dragon. Who was it by? Was it by Saltis, maybe? There was some book on... Uh, I can't remember. Um, you see, I'm not very good at specifics. Oh, on the main line of the Yugoslav attack with H4 and H5 in that there was a book that started about move 16. And Jonathan Mestel told us about this. I mean, because he's my old, old friend from here. And so he said, there is this book, and we managed to get it across. But the first time that Kasparov played the dragon, Vichy reacted in the way that was expected, and he actually lost. So, And then when Vichy played the center counter in the next one, he um, got the advantage, but was not feeling good at that point, and Gasparov swindled him. So it went from plus one to minus two in three games or something, and that was really the end of the match. But I learned quite a lot about timing, that you have to grasp what's going on in the match, and that's something you only learn firsthand. It's not something, seeing it from the outside, it's hard. Now I can look at a match and say, I think this is the moment to do something. I may be right or I may be wrong but I can feel that, you know, something's building up. But at that time, I just didn't understand match play as well as all that. And do you feel like, I also got to interview Patrick Wolf, and he told some stories from that match. Um, do you feel like uh, it was your responsibility to sort of see around corners as you're describing? No, I, well, I mean, I, I wasn't the, I mean, Arthur was the basically primary second. So I wasn't really asked what to do. 
so I mean I could have made a fuss, but I mean I we had lots of work to do. Obviously, the player is going to choose somebody he's happy to ask those sort of questions, and he'll probably ask in a subsidiary way the other seconds. So no, I didn't think it was my responsibility. I thought that if I'd understood matches as I do now, then I would have made a much bigger fuss. Yes, mm-hmm. at that moment, because had I realised. Had I thought about it in a meta way and just thought the open Spanish is really a dangerous opening to play, why don't why don't you hit him while he's off balance? Then that would have been probably we'd have got hit in the open Spanish eventually, because she couldn't play more than one centre counter, certainly not more than two. Uh, but no, I didn't think it was my responsibility, but I thought it was a shame. I did sort of make a slight fuss, I think, but not very much. I mean, there's so much going on. You know, you're working yeah. hours a day, and then, then I, I was able to go to, to the games and watch the games while they were happening, which was nice. I, so I had some time off then. And you just don't, you know, you assume your player is going to choose who he asks what he should play. And if he doesn't ask you, that's not really up to you to push yourself. And when you watch a game like that, you've worked on the team, you go to the World Trade Center to to watch the game, is that more or less nerve-wracking than competing in a high-stakes game yourself? It's different, isn't it? I mean, I think watching people and not being able to influence it is in some ways more nerve-wracking. Because, once, I mean, personally, I'm very nervous before I play normally, even now. But once I'm playing, I'm just, you know, you're playing a game of chess. One of the wonderful things about a game of chess is that every time you play a move, the, the, the myriad possibilities are whittled down so that you don't, you know, that's what's so horrible about a German, you know, that you have some position which is still very complicated and then you're supposed to work it out properly rather than just sort of being in the moment and doing something sensible. Makes sense. And so... Obviously, that's a you know you describe this sort of turning point when when Kasparov uh, won in the Roy and then t- shifted the momentum of the match. Uh, looking back, John, do you feel like Anand had was he strong enough yet to beat Kasparov? Could could um, he have won that match? I don't know. I think he would have had a decent chance if we got the the gear changes right. Yeah, but probably that's part of being a strong enough player, isn't it? Of understanding. Yeah. You know, of just being able to, to take that much strain and understand what's happened. Because until you've done it, you're not going to know. And I think having been close to it, you have some idea of what what it's like, you know. And as I said, if I were doing something like that now, I would make much more of a fuss. I mean, I might not be that useful for analysis, apart from suggesting crazy moves. But, <laughs> but I, would, I would have a strong a strong feeling of what needed to be done and when. And when you, I know you, you in your column wrote about, for example, the Carlson Nepo match, which ended up being a bit anticlimactic. Do you, yeah. do you find yourself thinking about match strategy a lot as you, as yes. you watch? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Nepo basically didn't. I suppose he didn't quite believe he could win, did he? Or, or he, he hoped he could win, but when he got hit once, he couldn't really recover, which is not a strong enough position to be in. You have to be able to be punched and to stagger a bit and then get up and keep on fighting. I mean, obviously, he got punched in the worst, absolutely the worst possible way in the game, he, the first game he lost. It's the most horrible way to 
to lose a game imaginable. But, you know, if you're going to play a match with Magnus, you can imagine something awful is going to happen at some point. Right. And you have to be ready for it and think, okay, something awful has happened. We fight again and not be so affected. I mean, one strength I do have is that I'm never surprised by my own stupidity. (laughs) But if I play some awful blunder, I think, well, I'm not very pleased that I curse. and You know, you do the things you do. But I'm not surprised. I don't think, how could you possibly do that? Because I know I'm a person rather than a robot or rather a chess engine. And so my search function doesn't always work. And sometimes things go wrong. You know, so... I don't feel shocked by that in in terms of existentially. I may be shocked at how badly I played, but not the fact that I played badly, if that makes sense. There's an amazing lesson for all of us club players in that. It makes sense. I mean, we're humans, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Well, I I did an interview for Chess Magazine. Um, uh, There was 60... 10 minutes with and the final thing was what's your advice for club players and i said something like trust yourself even if you're playing some terrible maestro if you see a good move then don't not play it because it can't possibly work uh you know if that's the move that you think is a good move play it but on the other hand if it looks like taking candy from a child i didn't say it look looks too good then, then sit in your hands because normally a good player won't allow you to do something ridiculously strong. So probably if there's something that looks too good to be true, it is too good to be true. Great advice. All right. Well, I want to get some more stories from you, John, but first we need to uh, take a break and hear from our sponsors. I've been due for an update from our friends at aimchess.com. Aimchess, of course, gathers games from the major chess playing sites and gives you actionable intel of what aspects of your game to work on, and it helps you work on them. Uh, I've been working on some new openings in my Blitz game. It turns out I'm doing pretty decently with those new openings. Of course, I've got to keep them a secret from you guys. Um, But I still have some other things to work on. Time management slightly better, but lots and lots of room to improve. Uh, I also need to work on advantage capitalization and resourcefulness. On the other hand, my end games are doing well and my openings are doing well overall. So if you're looking for that kind of insight as well as puzzles of tactics that you missed and chances to practice positions you didn't convert, then try out aimchess.com. If you do so, please use the code perpetual30 at aimchess.com. The link is also in the show description. Hear that sound? You should know what that means. It's your sign to finally forget about the -the run-of-the-mill resolutions and instead start your own New Year's revolution and start selling on Shopify. Shopify is an e-commerce platform revolutionizing millions of business worldwide. So whether you're selling chess courses, chess lessons, something unrelated to chess, perhaps related to your day job or side hustle, Shopify covers every sales channel from in-person point of sale to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. You can sell on social media marketplaces. It's packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth and gives you complete control over your business and your brand without having to learn new skills or learn how to code. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to help you support your success every step of the way. 
What's great about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify is there to empower you with the confidence and control to revolutionize your business, take your business to the next level. Now it's your turn to get serious about selling and try out Shopify today. So if you decide to try it out, sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash chess. That's shopify.com slash chess, all lowercase. And remember, when you try out our sponsors, you're also helping to support Perpetual Chess. In this case, it's a win-win because you can also take your business to the next level with shopify.com. And we are back. And Jonathan, uh, supporters of the podcast uh, are able to send in questions from the guest. And uh, this particular supporter, Deshaun Solomon, thanks for the question. And shout out to Deshaun. I think he either he did his homework or he's a big student of yours because his question is, he asks both for your general comments on beating Nigel Short in a match in the late 80s, of, of course, in uh, the candidate cycle. And particularly, he mentions, and I read this as well, that you found an idea from a Norwegian newspaper to win one of the games, which also harkens back to what you were saying about like scrambling to find a book in 1995 and makes me think of uh, like in the middle of a world championship match and makes me think of how much things have changed. Yeah. So um, he wants to know about that. Right. Well, so... I played this match. Um, Will Watson was my second for the first matches, but he thought Nigel was our best player. So he very honorably didn't want to be my second against our best player. And he's friends with both of us. So he bowed out and he recommended Jonathan Tisdall. So Tis became my second. And I went to Norway a couple of times to work and had some ideas, not... I've never been very good at preparation before because until I'm actually frightened. The thing is, um, in order to um, access my true feelings about chess, I need to be scared of losing. So if I'm playing a game, I look at a position and probably there's one move I want to play. There might be two I'd consider. If I'm analysing away and I'm calm and I'm having coffee, then there are two or three moves, and I think, well, I might do that, or might do that, or might do that. And um, that just isn't how I really feel about chess. I just feel this is the move I want to play. It may not be the best move, but it's the move I want to play. And so I've never been that good at preparation, in fact. Uh, For that match, the best idea I had, we were in a taxi on the way to a friendly game between, football game between Norway and Brazil, and I thought, what should, what would I play in this position? Because obviously, we, you know, I was thinking about the match. And I had this idea of fianchettoing in a French. And that was, uh, it was in a, what is it, a bishop g5, takes, takes, knight bd7 French, where black plays g6, or h6 and g6. And it's sort of nonsense. I mean, the first <laughs> question Nigel had to me after the match is, what was that? <laughs> that was his absolute first question. And I thought, this is probably not sound, but I can't prove it. Thank God we didn't have engines then. And it will discombobulate him, and it's the move I would like to play in this position. So I was able to access that. I played it, and that was great. Um, the thing that happened in this match, the first game, I didn't know Nigel had been working with Boris Spassky on the Tartakova. Obviously, I didn't know that. I played my normal stuff against the Queen's Gambit Tartakova, got outplayed, managed to make a draw, managed to create some confusion. In between game one and game three, Mikhail Gurevich played two games in the Russian Championship. 
I think we had both of them. We certainly had one of them in which he castled long in the Bishopeth for Queen's Gambit, what is now one of the main lines. At that stage, the best source of information was Schachwocker, which came out once a week from Switzerland. Is that, I think, Switzerland, isn't it? Yeah. So Chess Week came out once a week. And we were in between weeks. But when Tisdall's wife, then wife, and I divorced, um, came um, out, when Mariana came out um, to the match, she brought a Norwegian newspaper with this game in, which was fantastic. Uh, and just happenstance, or did you ask? Just happenstance. Wow. I mean, she's a chess player. She used to play for Norway. Uh, and Mariana came out, and we saw this game, and we thought, and Tiz persuaded me to play it. I didn't like it very much, but I thought, it's something I can play, and I played a bloody good game. I mean, it was the first time I'd played it, the first time Nigel met it, and he he played reasonably well, but I played, I played a good game, you know, like a proper strong player, and happened to win, and that completely discombobulated him, and then the next game, there was a Pitts, where I was very lucky. He played something against the Pitts. His second was John Nunn. He got a good position. I played a move, and I didn't realize I was sacrificing a piece, which is very lucky, because Nigel took about 40 minutes. And I don't think I'd even seen that he was winning a piece until maybe a couple of minutes before he did it. Probably saying about his body language at some point caught me. And so he won a piece, but it was for two pawns, and I had quite a lot of play, and it got out of control, and I beat him. So in two games, we'd gone from one all to three one. And then I had to not lose in a Catalan. Actually, I didn't play the opening very well, but he didn't notice. And so I beat him in, in, in that Catalan. No, we drew, we drew. I was winning at the position where we agreed to draw. And whether that's weakness or not, I don't think so. I think it's a sensible thing to do. But in some ways, when you're punching your rival, you should keep on doing so, even if it's it's not clear. And then he beat me the next match round, just. I think he lost a stone in a week playing that first match. So, you know, it was incredible strain for both of us. You were stressed as well? Of course I was stressed, yes. Yeah. But I had the advantage of being the underdog, at least at the start. And the first match was, was in London, correct? Yeah, it was in London. It was at Sadler's Worst Theatre, which is where they used to do Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. Did, do you feel like that impacted your nerves, either positively or negatively? You mentioned in, in your book that Nigel just lived down the short down the street from you, so it's like this global um, global stakes, but it's so local for you. Um, I don't know. I just I didn't particularly want to play him, but I mean, I had to, and you just have right. to do it. And my nerves were quite good then, I think. My nerves still are fine, you know. I mean, other bits of me, my eyes are crap, but I mean, my nerves are okay. And um, I can, yeah, once I'm playing chess, I'm reasonably okay. I may be very tense. One thing that does happen to me, I don't know, it happens to some chess players, my sense of time goes completely when I'm playing yeah, chess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I have no yeah. idea how long I've played, but also... If I'm sitting at a chessboard and I'm next to a game which, you know, is on the next board to me, I probably know what happened episodically, or I may not even know that, but I won't know the whole game. I won't necessarily know the result or anything, just because I'm so focused. Yeah, so it makes that, sense. So that's manic focus, yeah. 
So let's bring it forward in that candidate cycle. So after you beat Short, you play Jan Timman. Um, I did. That was in, oh, wait a minute. Uh, no, we played in the Barbican against Jan. That's right. And that came down to one game, right? I that mean, came down to game eight, yeah. Yeah, he beat me. Then I beat him in the Schleeman, which was Jonathan Tistler's idea. And game seven, I was a bit late because I actually came on the tube, which was nice. I was trying to be as normal as possible. <laughs> so we had a house somewhere quite close where he was staying and we did the analysis. But I just took the underground there because it seemed like the most normal thing that one could do in order to stay grounded. And I beat Jan. I was a couple of minutes late to that game. Then in game eight, he beat me in an English. And later... Do you mind before we go on? I just want to hear your thoughts about playing the Schleeman because obviously, I mean, it's a decent opening, but I would be surprised to see it in a candidate cycle now. Was it was it scary to play? Well, we knew what Jan played against it, and so we just we found a way to be not too much worse, or maybe to be almost equal. And obviously, it's a shock, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, of course. You know, a shock is worthwhile. You know, I mean, maybe everybody knows everything now, but I mean, Magnus jumps around like crazy now, doesn't he? And I, th I think it's just a good idea. You've only got, it was only an eight-game match, so you've got four blacks, and you just want to cause as much confusion as possible. And I also had to win at that point. Okay. I was one down. Uh, so, it you know, it caused great, you know, it causes stress, doesn't it? You know, like Michael Basman, who so sadly died. I mean, one of his most famous games, he'd beaten with E4, G5, you know. And, you know, it, it's worthwhile. Chess is quite a lot psychological. It's, it's a war between two people, you know, probably fought with luck, with a very good spirit, and afterwards you can be you can be good friends or you very good friends. But during it, you're at war, and you do whatever you can to, to cause trouble. Um, so, no, I don't explain the Sleeman and so on. So the last game, I blundered at some point in Jan 1. And then when I saw him in Amsterdam I don't know, a year or two later, one of his neighbours had put the had bottled some wine with the position <laughs> that I lost to him. So Jan showed me this bottle, but he didn't open it. And that I do resent. I don't mind the bottle at all, but the lack of opening was disgraceful. I wonder if he still has it. <laughs> I wonder if he still has it, yeah. No, of course, because you could keep the bottle and not open it, but you do feel that maybe he thought, I don't know, maybe he thought that giving me some of the wine from that bottle would be rude. I don't know. He may have done <laughs> Right. Anyway, and, I... Yeah. And do you often think back? I mean, obviously, you've achieved an, an incredible amount in in, um, in your career, but so you were at the doorstep. Did Timon play Karpov after winning that match? or uh, Timon played Karpov. Yeah, I, I was frightened of Karpov. I didn't really want to play him that much. So. <laughs> okay. So I don't think I could have done that. What Nigel did against Carpo was fantastic, actually, before he played Kasparov. Did that surprise you? Uh, yeah, and well, I admired it greatly as well. A little bit surprised me. I mean, I knew Nigel is more determined than me and probably more able to shut off his sense of his own weakness. Uh, but yeah, that was tremendous what Nigel did. Um, I did... No, but about all those times, and then the next match, I lost to Nigel in game 10. We ended up playing eight games. And, um, yeah, I slightly regretted... I've slightly regretted trying to fool myself into not believing it was important while I was doing it. 
But on the other hand, if I hadn't, I might have done much worse. Because I think you have to find... The important thing if you're doing something as difficult as playing a World Championship match or candidates match is to create a space in which you can operate. That's the most important thing, whatever you're doing, if you're playing at the club or playing a club game, you have to get in... You have to be sufficiently comfortable you can think and you can make reasonable decisions. And and in order to do that, you need to be in some sort of zone, you know, not a comfort zone, but, but not so far outside your comfort zone. People can operate far outside their comfort zones for a while, but it's normally it normally doesn't last very long. You know, there are people who can go way above their ambient level for a little while by enormously hard work. But it's a bit brittle. Because unless their ambient level actually goes up, then all the time they're, they're fighting to stay, to keep enough advantage from the opening or whatever, so that they don't end up doing battle on equal terms with somebody who may be a bit better than them. Great great perspective there. It's, it's so interesting to hear you um, discuss yeah. uh, the, these historic matches and um just you know general advice that we can uh, learn from as well um john we need to take one more break and then we will be back to hear some more stories perpetual chess is proud to be brought to you in part by our presenting chess education sponsors chessable.com chessable of course uses space repetition to help you remember tactical patterns opening sequences whatever aspect of your game that you're working on and they have a huge library of awesome courses so whatever it is you want to work on there's a good chance you can find something to help you on chessable some of their latest includes a lifetime repertoires course on the london from grandmaster sahaj grover and sarnath narayanan now I don't want you to play in London personally, but if you're going to do it, then this is a good learning resource. Uh, Grandmaster Alex Cholovich has a new course on Bobby Fischer's Endgames. Of course, uh, the legend R.B. Ramesh's Improve Your Chess Calculation if you really want to challenge yourself. So there's always tons to check out from chessable.com. They have lots of free courses to check out as well. So just be sure to go to Chessable, get a streak going, and see what they have to offer. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And we are back. And John, another thing that caught my eye in uh, reviewing your book, you mentioned that your unfortunately your your father died when you were young, so you grew up without a dad. And you you, you drew a parallel between some of the greats. Um, obviously, uh, Korchnoi had his um you know harrowing upbringing, and there's Petrosian, Kasparov. Um, do yeah. you think there's something there in terms of uh, all these great players growing up without dads, or is it just a coincidence? I don't think it's as uh, crude as what Ruben Fine might have suggested. Uh, I don't think, you know, I don't think that you're killing the father or something or doing a substitute for that. Or I, I don't think chess is that Oedipal, but probably you may not 
not having a male role model may make you make make war in different ways from if you did. I don't know. It's certainly it's true that quite a lot. Yeah, I forgot I said that, but of course that's true. Yeah, it's certainly not universally true, you know. But a lot of top players. I mean, Kasparov had a very strong mother, didn't he? Right. Uh, very strong person. I don't know so much about Petrosin. His father died when he was young. Video. I think I sort of knew that. Yeah, he was an orphan, and I forgot to mention Fisher, of course. Yeah, well, Fisher. Yeah, Fisher had a very difficult upbringing and was yeah. Obviously, had an enormous Oedipus complex and all these. I mean, you know, they're root and fine dead, and big troubles with his mother. Yeah, yes, he was of course a genius, but pretty difficult man. And do you feel like this? Were you like hard driving? I mean, you've you've written that you were relatively late bloomer, I believe, earning the GM title at age twenty four, which you know doesn't sound that late, but in in modern times, it very, certainly is. Very late, yeah. For that, for then, it wasn't so late. I was already 24, yeah. It was the end of 1980, yeah, before my first Olympiad in Malta. Um, and were you like a freewheeling type or were you working really hard on your game, John? I, I worked a little bit. I mean, the thing is, I always thought what happened, what I really thought was, surely there is somebody who can play chess who will beat me up. And eventually I found Kasparov, Karpov, and Ivanchuk, and they probably <laughs> could play chess. And nobody else, well, Kuchner could, but I mean, I could. To confuse him as well and so i kept on looking for somebody so much better than me that it made sense and being surprised that people didn't play that well and yeah i mean i wasn't very confident because i didn't beat an im until 19 no, i didn't beat a grandmaster till i beat ben larson in lone pine i think in 77 76 or 77 i beat ben and that was the first time I'd beaten a grandmaster. So I was very, I had some sort of barrier and some sort of respect. So, which the kids nowadays obviously don't, they, right. that they will beat grandmasters when they're just about in their, into their teens. And they're, then they're not frightened anymore. And of course, it does make a difference watching people now online. Huge difference. Well, first you have all this barracking from these people who seem to believe that because a machine has seen something that's stupid of the players not to, which is, of course, completely ridiculous. You know, the idea that because a machine sees some ridiculously difficult move, any human being would see it is nonsense. And, you know, one thing I can do, I mean, I don't stream very much now, but what I do is to say, well, I think they're thinking about this and that it is reasonable that they should see this and it is not reasonable they should see that and have a decent idea of, Maybe the kids now are going to see more because they work with computers more. But the people who are a bit older, even Magnus or whatever, you know, are not going to see some moves just because you don't see them. You know, why would you? I mean, seeing Knight D7, you know, just you know, blows my mind. Yeah, bringing it back to the, to the Ivanchuk. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, you just think... And, you know, sometimes people do things very, very quickly. I saw MBL... You know, there's a combination where you put a queen on h8 or h1 or something, they take it, you take a pawn with a knight and fought king and queen. Mm -hmm. Which happens is a well-known combination. I saw MVL do that in, in about a second once in a blitz game. Less than a second he played queen h1 check. And of course, 
Ikaro just played quinta B4 check takes B2 yesterday. But I think he was thinking about it for more than that because Magnus was thinking. But, you know, you just think sometimes you don't see a tactic and you think, oh, these boys are pretty quick. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I saw, I caught that. That was like a, the Hakar one, like a two-move tactic. But, man, did he see it fast. And, yeah, that was that was a big moment. I think, I think he'd seen it probably. Yeah, well with, before. Right, yeah. of course. So he just, just thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that that I can trip yeah. the world champion. As he did, so, yeah. So, but you, I mean, so I'm just, just still curious, John, because you made it to number four in the world. It's so incredible. And you studied math at Oxford. You've written did, that, yeah. that you don't you don't have any regrets, but... Um, no, 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 well, I'm not a, not that good at math. I didn't think I was number four. I thought I was in the top 10. But uh-huh. that I, it was, wasn't unreasonable I should be ranked number four, but that I wasn't really number four. I was one of the, one of the top 10 in the world properly... And I, my peak rating, you know, you go up and down. I had I had had a match matches with Yasser and Nigel, so it's, they're going to go up, aren't they? Your rating, and it was only twenty six, forty, or forty five. But of course, at that stage, that's probably a hundred points more than, you know, or, or something. I mean, it's not clear what the inflation is. And of course, the kids play really well today. All of them, you know, Gukesh and all these boys. Yeah, they're amazing. And oh, and you can see in you know I recently got to interview uh, Srinath Narayanan, um, yeah. Gacy's trainer, and yeah. there's a there's a seriousness of mind about especially the rising Indian players, but yeah. a lot of the the young players um, that's quite striking. Um, mm. And I'm curious when you were in your early 20s and you decided you again as you've uh, written about in the past you you decided not to pursue you mentioned you studied math so you, you didn't you didn't want to be an actuary or an accountant um, yeah. you you studied you decided to pursue chess but what was your approach to pursuing chess were because i know you're you have a lot of interests outside of chess were you studying it 40 50 hours a week or were you no, just living I your mean, life i've never been very good at studying it as i said I, i'm i'm a basically a player and i'm uh, and a hacker, really, quite a lot of them. <laughs> You're an inspiring uh, I, hacker. I, I, the games I like, actually, are either pure hackery or extreme subtlety. I like very subtle endings as well. So I like either a scalpel or a bludgeon, really, but not much in between. And is a, no, a bludgeon, or uh, you bludgeon with, a bludgeon is not a tool, is it? Anyway, so this is some sort of baseball bat, maybe, or, or a scalpel, <laughs> nothing much in between. And um, no, I didn't study that much just because I wasn't that good at it. Um, because as I said, I find it really, really hard to access my true feelings about chess unless I'm playing. And then it's very easy. Interesting. Uh, and that's not, not an advice. I mean, you know, that's why I wasn't a bit better, I think. Because, you know, okay. I think, you know, in talent, I'm quite good. But I mean, I was, it just, my preparation was pretty crap always. <laughs> my preparation was avoiding other people's preparation. On the other hand, the English do have an advantage. We have the advantage we just weren't trained, and which is both a terrible thing, of course, compared to modern children, and also rather a wonderful thing, because it means that we would do things that no Russian schoolboy could contemplate. <laughs> you such know, as that, the Schliemann, yeah. Well, such as the Schliemann and Basman playing as G5 and as A6, and, you know, all this. So and and of course Tony playing a six against Karpov, after which Karpov wouldn't play chess with him for a while. So it was such uh-huh. an insult. 
Yeah, fantastic stories. And John, uh, the aforementioned Jan Timmen, uh, he strikes me sort of as a kindred spirit. I don't know what your personal relationship with him is like. Very good. I like yeah. that. Okay. Yeah. But I when mean, I, I interviewed... With, with most people, you know, I mean, it, I mean, basically, you make war, it means you can be much more comfortable. I mean, the great thing about chess rather than, say, music is that there is a result, isn't there? However right. unjust, there is a result. So if you've beaten them, they may say, you should never have done this, it is a scandal. But they can't say, I blame the judges, you know. <laughs> right. They can't say, I pirouetted well. Because, you know, they pirouetted less well, it's quite clear. <laughs> you know, so there's nothing to be done at that stage. Right. Um, and um, that makes it much easier, I think. Uh, like, like with sport, I mean, you know, something happens, you can blame the referee, you can jump up and down and squeak, but basically there is a result. And especially in chess, the great thing about chess is you're naked, um, uh, mentally speaking. I mean, okay, you have all the armor you've gathered beforehand, all your opening theory, all your knowledge, but when you're actually playing, you're at a board, you are sitting opposite another person. Thank God you don't have to wear a mask anymore. And you are doing making battle, which is why cheating is so repulsive uh over the board i mean it's a bit different when you're sitting at a computer because you know you're playing a computer game really you yeah. know but, but but you know you are naked and so it's important that you know you do your mud wrestling in person <laughs> you don't have a yeah uh, i'm yeah. like i was mentioning to you before we recorded yeah despite you know widespread um, rumors of Magnus and Hakara not having a great personal relationship. You you could even sense sense their sporting respect for each other in their post game interviews that, that they love that there's this other person that can challenge them. Um, yes, no, of course, of course there is. I mean, you know, of course it annoys you if you want to be number one and some other punk is trying to be number one. Then obviously it's hard to be really good friends. I mean, of course, you know, Dalmata the new Super played a candidates match, didn't they? And that was really tough because they were basically best friends. And then they used to, I think they used to have breakfast together before they went off to beat the crap out of each other, you know. And, wow. uh, you know, because, of course, they were, you know, they'd been friends all their lives, and they'd worked with Matt Varetsky and, you know. Um, so that was very difficult. But, I mean, you know, and I think their relationship was never quite the same afterwards because it had undergone such a stress test. But, um, you know, you have to, you can easily like people you do very unpleasant things to it in a completely uh, predetermined environment, which doesn't involve physical violence. I mean, I suppose even boxers quite often like each other when they're not beating each other up, or sometimes do, you know. I mean, you Speak know, they're in a predetermined arena, they hit each other, and then they can, certainly other sportsmen, footballers and things may like each other when there isn't quite so much violence. And rugby players, you know, often used to go for a drink afterwards, and, you know, rugby is a very, very violent game and without protective equipment, although that very much of it. Right. Speaking of boxing, it jogged my memory. I don't suppose you caught the chess boxing match between uh, Lawrence Drenton and Amon Hamilton. And Actually, then, uh, some, somebody showed me it. Yeah, I thought it was ridiculous. I mean, I, think <laughs> I mean, I do think it's ridiculous that people wear a, wear a helmet when they're playing chess to stop the sound coming in and take it off so that somebody can punch them. <laughs> and I just think it's dangerous. You know, if they can both box, then nobody's probably going to be hurt. But, you know, people have been hurt at this. 
I mean, Lawrence Chen got, got knocked over twice, didn't he? And the referee then quite rightly stopped it. Yeah. And Lawrence got a whinge, but it's absurd. I mean, you know, what's the, you know, it's not a macho thing. If you can fight, you can fight. If I could fight, then I would occasionally think it was necessary to, but I can't. So, I mean, not, you know, if things happen. But I mean, but, you know, if you can't do it, then doing it is ridiculous. And you're, you're um, risking serious damage to your head or to your eyes or something, you know. Because if somebody punches you hard in the face, it can hurt you, can't it? Obviously. Yeah. And, you, and you know, if you, if you can't box, it's not very hard for them to punch you in the face. And so, you know, what, what is the point of that? Um, you know, you can beat them at chess, but you're not going to be compass to do it, are you? Yeah. Yeah, it's not really my thing either, but it was immensely popular. <laughs> It'll be interesting oh, I'm to sure see. it was, yes. Well, I mean, Lawrence Trent waving his hands about it being knocked over, you know. I mean, if Lawrence wants to do that, I mean, I guess it's sort of impressive in a macho sense that he's prepared to do it. But I also think it's completely, you know, you you should be able to box to do it. He obviously can't. It he would he would beg to differ. He said on Twitter that he was disappointed that he didn't he didn't show his stuff properly. But but, but, but he lost in about thirty seconds, didn't he? Or so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, and thank God it did. Is all I can say. Because the guy he was playing chess with and fighting is he a grandmaster as well? This guy. Yeah, he is a man Hamilton. Yeah, uh, yeah, and he can box as well. Yeah. Well, he was a little coy. I mean. Lawrence was very public about all the training he was doing. Um, we only found out a monkin box when we saw it. So, uh, yeah. and he could, couldn't he? He sure could. Yeah, impressive yeah. display. Um, so, so you know, I mean, I just think it's really silly. I mean, I I understand the idea, you know, men's sanas and corporate sana and all this stuff. But I mean, actually, you know, whatever the opposite, which I can't, I can't do any more Latin than that. I mean, you know, a, a cracked mind and a cracked body. I would say, and you know, it's quite likely to happen. So I don't, I don't approve. Okay. Well, let's get a few more chess stories before we let you go, if we could. Okay. Um, John. So you're, you're great. So you've mentioned that Larson was one of your, your boyhood heroes. You played through yeah. his games, and then he was the first grandmaster you beat. I, I'd love to yeah. hear about what that felt like. How Was it a... Well, was well, it well, he, didn't, he didn't play very well, actually. It was the first round of Lone Pine. He actually won the tournament afterwards. I got about 50%. He had jet lag, and he played some rubbish opening, and he kept on making decisions that helped me, so I didn't have to make too many decisions myself. So I just beat him. I mean, it just happened. I mean, it should have happened much earlier, because I was a decent... I wasn't an IM yet. I think I got an IM norm, possibly my IM title at that tournament, actually. So I wasn't even an international master. I mean, I was really a very late developer by modern standards, you know, I think it's 1977 or 78 I became an IM. And, um, yeah, well, it, it was it was nice. You know, I beat him. He probably wasn't very pleased and stopped off somewhat without. Then I played, did I play Ryshevsky and draw with him or something? Then I lost lost to Wally Brown at some point in that tournament. And you, you played Tal once, is that right? No, I played Tal five or six times. Oh, sorry. I, I lost two or three times, drew two or three times. I also played some blitz with him, and I went, did win some games, but I lost one, including a double bishop sacrifice, which he then published in 64, <laughs> which I was amused by. I thought he, well, I thought he was a chess player who was world champion who adored chess, which it's not clear 
there have been chess players who adore winning, but whether they adore chess quite as much as, as Misha did isn't clear. Obviously, Magnus does, because he plays plays bullet and things. You know, because, I mean, Botvinnik Bot harumphed about playing five-minute chess, didn't he? Right. He thought playing five-minute chess was a denigration of chess. And here you've got, Mag you got Magnus occasionally playing hyper-bullet, certainly playing bullet a lot, quite seriously. So, yeah. And, and you've written that Tal had the, the impressive skill of playing playing extremely well, even when it looked like he was going to pass out drunk in the middle of a, a blitz session. So, I mean, I think even when he was about to pass out, he was... <laughs> right. Well, it, so, was a, it was his native language, wasn't it? I mean, you yeah. Can, you can still often slur speech reasonably well when you're drunk. And if it's your native language, that's what he could do. And, yeah, and, he could... Yeah. And did you have occasion to share drinks with him? <sighs> Certainly not competitively, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we had post-mortems where maybe some of the game... Tournaments we had post postmortems. There was alcohol on prees, and we we may have had a drink each, but certainly not in the proper sense of drinking. Not peak tall, not peak tall drinking. <laughs> no. But of course, I mean, he only had one kidney. This this man as well. Yeah, and you know, yeah, we shouldn't shouldn't make light of it in a sense. But um, no, he was, well, he was a genius. It was a great shot when he died, really, because you sort of thought he was one of these people who was immortal, right? Because it was obvious he should have died so many times that he hadn't. Yeah. yeah. And I, I forgot the story, John, but I had an I had a note in my outline that you had a Luboyevich story from an, a game with him. Oh, that was in London, yeah. Yeah. I like Luba. Yeah, as well actually. He we played in London at the tournament where I got my gra uh, my first grandmaster norm, which was the Philip and Drew Kings. And we're playing we're getting into a time scramble. And he throws his queen along the eighth rank. Right. Now it comes back to me. Go on. <laughs> so it gets to about somewhere between G8 and H8. So since we're playing blitz chess, I go to push his queen back onto the right square and to play my move. Because I, I'm playing five-minute chess, and I'm just going to put his piece where it should be and get on with it. But, you know, we're in a five-minute game at this point. But as I go to pick, touch his queen, he thinks I'm about to take his queen. Not unreasonably. So he starts uh -huh. at me. So it landed on the wrong, just to be clear for listeners, it landed kind of on the wrong square, but you knew where he meant to put it, and you tried yeah, to so correct it. I was just going to push it. I was going to move right. it with my finger, then move my king. My king was on h7, and queen g8 check. I was going to play king h6, but I was just going to push his queen uh, or wherever it was. Did he put landed on h8 when it should have been on g8? I can't remember. Anyway, I, I guess... I would guess he moved it not far enough, but <laughs> yeah. rather than too far. But. but but anyway, I can find out. I mean, the game is uh, Lubovitch, Spielman, Phillips and Drew, Kings, 1980. Uh, you can find it. Anyway, so I went to adjust his king and play the move, just as I would if I was playing Blitz, which maybe is not what you're supposed to do, but it's what I do in a five-minute session. And he thought I was going to take it, so he started screaming that his, his, his queen was on the right square. So eventually, there was a lot of noise, and Stuart Rubin came along and stopped the clock and said, "Well, it's on, on the on the other square, which it was sort of." And I and so I, I thought I was still worse, so I offered a draw while this was being considered. He agreed to draw, and so we just the game finished after that, and people were impressed and gave me 
John Lang gave me a nice draw in the last round to get my GM norm, which was kind of him. Partly because I could probably have stolen a whole point if I wanted to, but I didn't want to. I didn't think that wasn't what I was trying to do. Well, you know, if you're playing... So we changed mode, and definitely I wasn't going to take his queen. I knew I was going to push it either that way or that way. I can't... I'm sitting black, aren't I? So I'm going this way. Actually, probably it's from h8 to g8, because, look, my hand goes over to move my king. It's going to be in my right hand, yeah? So it goes over there. So if I'm going to push it with my little finger, it's going to be from h8 to g8, isn't it? Right. I can't remember. Because I think on h8 it would have been on prees backwards, whereas probably my queen was in f6 and the king on h7, and I was going to play king h6, which is the only move. But he just put his queen too far, I think. Anyway, that's what happened. And, yeah, he was very nice to me in a tournament in Spain. He had already beat me in, when I had a horrible, horrible start. He was very sweet to me, and I thought that's very kind. Uh, ben Feingold said that he – I know that, that you do some streaming. He said that Lubojevic would have been one of the all-time great chess streamers. Do you, do you agree with that? He's still alive. Yeah, Lubo. I know, but he's yeah. not streaming. <laughs> no. I do very little now because my eyes are very crap. And but when I do, I, I yeah, I enjoy it. And I normally just do commentary. I don't play people. I mean, I see these boys playing day after day, playing against their customers, and I just think that must be quite a hard way to make money. I mean, obviously, it's both an easy way and a hard way. Right. Because you're, you're playing all these awful games occasionally, and you're going to lose some of them, which, and you're going to commentate on them. And, you know, it's just, it's it's hard work to maintain a patina of enthusiasm, I would think. But I suppose you're working, so you're working. You know, it's like being yeah. away from something, more or less, you know. And so you've mentioned a couple of times, John, issues with your eyes. And it also, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's on your Wikipedia page, they mentioned that you had something fixed in your 20s and you had a, a jump in chest <laughs> yeah. strength at that point. Yeah, yeah I had... I think in 1980, the first thing happened. I mean, at the moment, they're not terribly good, but we shall see. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I still, with the eyes as they are at the moment, I've just won this Blitz tournament. So, you know, I can still operate. So do you, but do you mind giving a little bit of context? Like, was there was there an, uh, an incident or your, your no, eyes no, have just I been mean, bad? I am all... extremely short-sighted. I'm, I'm round about minus 20 in both eyes. Which okay. Means, which means you get eye disease. You get things uh -huh. happen in the back of your eyes. So I've got some macular degeneration. Do they hurt? No, it doesn't hurt. It just means, That's good. means your eyesight is bad. And and is it true that when you were young, there was an issue and then it, it helped your chest when, when you got uh, corrective? No, I mean, I had a hemorrhage, first I had a hemorrhage in the eye in 1980. And I went to Moorfields and it got sorted out. And I think 80 or 81. And yeah, I mean, obviously... I was very frightened that I mean, you know, and you just you realize after a while that you're going to be reasonably okay for a while, touch wood. And yeah, so so it's a problem, but you know, I mean, you just have to obviously, as long as you can see, you can see. I can see as you can see. But so it sounds like you, you streaming isn't like a you might pop on occasionally, but it's not a big priority right now. Well, the thing is that if I do four or five hours, I'm absolutely knackered, and then <laughs> when I commentate, I feel I should do a whole session. But maybe I should just do half sessions, say I'll do a couple of hours, because a couple of hours is okay. But doing four hours of commentary or something, although I enjoy it, I mean, I have not very many people come on to my channel, but 30 or 40 people maybe, you know, 
and we have no trouble at all. We hardly ever have any trolls. And, you know, people make puns and jokes and things, but, you know, not dirty jokes, nice jokes. Right. And, things, and it's just very pleasant, and I enjoy it. I know I'm going shopping for you soon. Yeah. <laughs> I love the dedication. You're, you're being rounded up. Um, being sorry, rounded go on. Up. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. Um, well, you know, I enjoy it. I, I like it. I have, I don't know, one and a half thousand followers or something and get 40 or 50 people at a time or sometimes fewer depending on when. And I'm just not doing it very regularly at the moment because it's a bit of a strain. But I mean, okay. I hope I'll do it. I try to do it once, twice a month or something, but not more than that. Okay. And, uh, and you do some teaching as well. Are you taking students, John? Yeah, I take students. I'm basically, I teach either by sharing screens on chess space or on Lee Chess, and my details are on Lee Chess. Yeah. Uh, I've got a Lee Chess teaching page. Uh, I okay. don't really teach on chess.com, but I teach on Lee Chess. Or, and yeah, I teach quite a lot, uh, but not a huge amount. I mean, and I enjoy it. You know, I, I like basically what I do is I look at people's games, talk to them about it, try to wind them up, show them some tactics. Uh, try to sacrifice my queen as often as possible, <laughs> and, and then show them show them some grandmaster games, and maybe teach them endings. Not very much opening work. If you want right. a heavy sausage opening coach, that's not me. It really isn't. Because I mean, of course, I can look at a position and say I think this, and I'll have a view. But for the nitty gritty of going through an opening move by move, working out exactly what you want to do, I'm just not very good at it. It but, makes sense, yeah. We, yeah. We've got engines for that. Um, we have got engines. You have to know how to use them, of course. Yeah. You have to be in control of the engine. You and do you have a... Sorry, go ahead. You have to be in control of the engine. It mustn't control you. Yeah, that, yeah good advice. Um, and do you have a favorite type of student? Do you like the conscientious or the laissez-faire? The laissez-faire, but I mean also just people who are interesting... People are nice to chat to, you know, you do you chat a bit, you do some chess, you look at some more chess, occasionally you chat for a bit. I mean, you know, I teach both people who are really close to beginners and people who are quite strong. And obviously they're completely different things. Teaching a strong player is, you know, you're seriously engaged. Whereas with somebody weaker, you're trying to engage at a level where they can where they can get something out of you. Okay. And one last question, John, in reviewing your chess-based news column, which I've I've read for years, but obviously I, I went through them kind of sequentially getting yeah. ready for this interview. I noticed that you've kind of shifted from doing a lot of amateur game analysis to, to telling yeah. more stories and more uh, top-level chess analysis lately. Was that like a conscious thing? Yeah, that was conscious. At some point, I did an Agony column. So it was an Agony column of people's games for I don't know how long it lasted. I can find out. I have a complete list of my things. And at some point, when the editorship of Chess Space changed, we had a chat and they said, well, why don't you just write a column and write it once a fortnight? So I used to do once a week, which was too often. It was too much work. Mm -hmm. really. And so I just started doing freestyle. And, you know, the latest one, all this thing, I don't know if you've seen the latest one with all these queens. It's a little yeah. bit... It's a bit monochrome, but it's quite interesting in a way. Certainly the positions with three queens each are rather amazing. You know, yeah. in fact, there are a couple of games in a database of three million where both players have three queens on the board. One of them 
they have three queens on a board for about six or seven moves, about 12 half moves or something. You just wouldn't think that was possible, really, would you? No, you wouldn't. And obviously, this isn't two children playing some ridiculous game where somebody queens all their pawns and then tries to make the opponent's king without giving stalemate. This was the first Saturday IM tournament. I assume wow. it's a real game. Um, <laughs> you know, I looked at. I mean, they played sixty moves. So I can't believe they'd said we're going to get three queens each and have a draw. Didn't look like that at all. Uh, so I just thought this is amazing, even though I wasn't really analysing it. I was just letting the engine do its stuff. And, yeah. Know. Well, I enjoy the new format. I, I like it better, I have to say. Um, yeah. Okay. So, well, if, if your readers ever want to send in suggestions, I from time to time run out of ideas. So if they want to, they can email me and I will be very happy or they can send suggestions to Chessbase. That's, you know, because excellent. please do. It, sorry. Yeah. Honest. I mean, just from my perspective, if you just look at a top 100 list and just pick a player and just write about that player. To me, that would be very interesting. I mean, you, you've got so much personal experience, but also just your knowledge where you can look at their games and share things that regular people can't pick up. Yeah, I could do that. I don't really do that very often. I mean, I do mention players, but, but not so much in that, that way. Yeah. Hmm. But, okay. but I'll be sure to link to your email address so that people, whether yeah. they're interested in lessons or have suggestions can, yes, can reach out. I, I enter my leeches. Uh, teaching page, please, as well. Will do. Page? Yeah. You, you know how to you know, just go Lee Chess Coaches. Uh, yeah, you, you can even you, just Google Lee Chess Coaches Jonathan Lee Spielman. Chess Coach John Spielman, that will get you yeah. there. Okay. Well, Jonathan, it's been a true honor. I really appreciate your taking the time. Um, so many fantastic stories. Um, thank thank okay, you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Good, really good. Glad to, okay. glad to hear it. And I hope I didn't get you in trouble with your wife for uh, not going shopping yet. Uh, uh, no, no, we got time. Uh, but I definitely need to go and shop soon. Okay. okay. Cheers, All right. Thanks so much. Cheers. Bye. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the... Podcast Network. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.